Hello and welcome to the Until We Arise podcast with Rachel and Veronica, where we bridge a divided people to loving community, empowering resources, and a compassionate Christ. Hi everyone, Rachel here today for Until We Rise's podcast, and I'm so excited to share with you chapter two of my book, Do You Want to Be Perfect? This one is really a tough one. Um, So a trigger warning for anyone enduring or maybe recently having dealt with a family member who has been ill. But um, a few years ago, my dad has um, had a couple of liver transplants and it really was one of the most trying times of my life. And so just to let you know, some of this is a very personal and um, in-depth account of what that experience was like for me as his daughter and so I just ask that you listen with an open heart because it wasn't easy to write and it feels extremely risky to put it out there but I truly believe that there's a message here about how to walk in God's perfection how to be perfect and this is a really great chapter that I believe strongly um, not only for its emotional content that it will take you there with me but also I believe the the revelation the biblical revelation that is in this chapter is really going to help change your life. What I began to learn about God, about who he was, has really transformed my whole world, my whole perspective. So with that, I pray that you would listen, have an open heart as we jump into chapter two. Asking the wrong questions. Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Matthew 19, 21. In 2008, my daddy, a 49-year-old, hot-headed, Holy Ghost-filled, redeemed ex-convict, with a heart of gold, was on his deathbed. It had been four years since he had a liver transplant, and it had been a rough road. My dad went to the hospital for a routine biopsy and caught an infection that revealed more underlying issues that included a problem with his transplant. There was a valve that was not properly functioning and the infection was attacking his body, posing the risk of rejection. The way it works is that whenever a foreign object enters the body, the body's immune system will do everything it can to fight the foreign object. This is the body's way to fight infection and disease. This is a wonderful system, but when a person receives an organ donation, the body will instinctively do the same thing. The body knows that the organ does not belong and it will will try to get rid of it. Organ recipients are thus on anti-rejection medication for the rest of their lives following the procedure. It also means that maintaining a healthy and balanced life is essential to staying alive. Any sickness or infection will attack their body more aggressively due to a suppressed immune system and can also cause the body to reject the organ. Without medication, the body will reject the very thing it needs to live. The immune system is focused on its job to fight 
and fails to recognize the greater need of the vital organ. So when my dad got the news that his liver was at risk, it was terrifying. Not just because of the memories of his illness leading up to the surgery, but this wasn't just any old liver that he got. This was a special liver. In 2004, when we found out my dad was sick and needed a liver, he refused to allow my brother and I to even get tested to see if we could be a match. His big brother, cousins, and friends got tested, but no match. When my mom took the test and discovered that she was a match, it was a shock even for the doctors. My mom was a perfect match, both in blood type and in size. So she offered a piece of her liver for him. It is extremely rare for a married couple to be a match. It was a miracle only God could orchestrate and a beautiful chapter in their love story. I remember moving home from my apartment in Riverside as I was finishing up my bachelor's degree to find my mom and dad on a strict diet. My mom was on a mission to lose 20 pounds in order to be eligible to be a donor for my dad and my dad was on strict restrictions to limit the strain on his hepatitis-scarred liver. I felt completely out of the loop. I was applying for grad school, running around with my boyfriend, and planning my college graduation. I had packed up my 2001 Explorer and moved into the second room in my parents' tiny two-bedroom house in Southgate. It felt like we were all in a trance, running on autopilot and carving out tiny moments to breathe and feel the confusing emotions of the time. My younger brother joined the Navy, got married, and was stationed in Washington State. My mom was on turbo mode, cooking all my dad's low-sodium meals, making fresh juices, exercising, praying, fasting, trying to be there for me, emailing my brother on the ship, working full-time, and doing all she could to care for my dad. He was trying to hold on to his job as a manager of a vitamin warehouse, but his body was giving out. It was all happening so fast. One week, we were celebrating my college graduation at Benihana's, and the next week, my parents were being prepped for surgery. The day both my parents were rolled into the operating room, my world was shaken. I trembled in a daze as my extended family and I waited for the surgery to be complete. My whole world was hinged to the door of that waiting room, waiting to hear something from the doctors, waiting for a good report, waiting to hear that I could go inside and see the people who had given me life. My whole world was hinged there, swinging, waiting. When the door swung open and the familiar face of the surgeon I had just met showed up, it felt like time slowed down. I was waiting for so long and no matter how quickly he was walking or how quickly he spoke, it was not fast enough. With each scurried step I took, I attempted to read his facial expressions. He told us that the first part of the surgery was over. My mom was in recovery, and we could see her in a little while. After what seemed like forever, I was escorted to her bedside. She was going in and out of sleep. She was in pain, but she smiled. The sterile smell of the room is my strongest memory. The smell of plastic and clean. Not like my mommy's clean, though. 
This one was impersonal and was tinged with the anxiety and the dread left behind by every patient who laid in the bed before her. My mommy's clean left a room smelling like Lysol, Comet, Clorox, and Pine Sol. The real Pine Sol. The one that, she, that said, I love you too much to let you get sick. The one that reminded me of my mom mopping the restroom floor on her hands and knees. That was the clean I wanted to smell. That was clean to me. This smell was foreign. This smell was not home. I clenched my mommy's hand and cautiously leaned on her shoulder to feel her close, to smell her. I was so glad she was out of surgery. I saw the love in her eyes as she asked me about my daddy. It would be a little while longer. His process was a little more complex. Mom, get some rest. I sat with my mom and waited, only swapping places with my family members who came to visit and wanted some time with her. Then we got word that my dad was out of surgery and we could see him. I kissed my mom on her temple. I wanted to tell her I was going to check on the love of her life, but she slept soundly. I snuck away. He was on a whole other floor. He was in ICU. It was touch and go. Due to the invasiveness of the procedure, he would be there for a while. It was nothing, there was nothing in the world that could have prepared me for that moment. At 22 years old, I never imagined seeing my Superman of of father in that state. The doctors tried to warn me, but all I could think of was being with my daddy. In that moment, I felt like I was six years old again, going to visit my dad in the LA County Jail. My mommy had to hold me back as I reached my tiny fingers through the double chain link fence that separated my dad and I in the massively large and concrete visiting room. Officers scolded us with guns drawn. I just wanted my daddy to hold me, to touch me, to reassure me that he had this under control and everything would be okay. This time, there weren't any officers holding me back. My mommy couldn't restrain me, and my dad was not wearing standard issues blues. This time, I caught a glimpse of my Superman through the window of the ICU. He was wearing clothes that really did not fit him. A loose-fitted, stained hospital gown with circulation machines on his legs and a number of IVs. His face was contorted as tape and tubes for breathing Medicine and drainage came out of his nose and mouth. My knees buckled. I felt myself collapsing to the floor. My aunt held me up, telling me they would not let me in if I couldn't handle it. They told me to be strong, that this was good. He's getting better. The surgery went well. I pulled it together to smile for him even though my daddy couldn't see me since his eyes were covered with an ointment to keep them shut during surgery. I hoped he felt me. I gently touched his bruised arm that was connected to what seemed like a dozen tubes. I can tell you now it's nothing like you see on TV. My daddy was unconscious and had tubes coming out of his nose, mouth, neck, and chest. 
smears of blood and a yellow antiseptic stained his skin and the dressing of his wounds. I love you, Daddy. Be strong, Daddy. It was one of the most trying times of my life. So when 2008 came around and we got the news that he was sick again, the thoughts of having to go through that all over again crept into my mind. I was devastated. And while I wanted to just give up, there was still a sense of hope I had to hold on to. My mom and dad were still holding on to hope. It was not over yet. There was still a story to be told. And I had to believe that my dad still had some life in him. Besides, so much had changed in four years. Since 2004, I had become a high school English teacher. I was single again after my boyfriend of six years and I broke, had broken up. And I had begun to pursue my walk with God in a real way. My brother had also moved back to LA and had a baby. Things were different on a lot of levels. This created this push and pull inside of me. It was like I was terrified, yet I was glad that I was actually getting closer to God than, ever, than I had ever been. Even though every time I thought of those long days in the hospital, I broke down into tears, I kind of felt like I had a spiritual game plan. I would trust in God for a miracle. Now that I was going to church faithfully and really doing well, I felt like I had more access to the answers, more access to the perks of Christianity. Like, I knew how to make my prayers more effective, so this would undoubtedly turn around. Theoretically, it seemed like a great plan. From the day we got the news in March until the day he was rolled into the emergency room in July, his health steadily and rapidly declined. Through that time, my spirit was weakened. I remember the day that my mom told me that the test results had come back and the liver had undergone too much damage and there was no repairing it. He would need another transplant. This time, he couldn't have a live donor. He would have to go on the United Network for organ sharing, IUNOS, donors list and wait for a liver to become available. My dad was dying and I felt helpless. Though I was learning to trust in God, I was serving in church, I was fasting and praying and worshiping through the hard times, my dad's health worsened. This was far more devastating than the first time. This time I would come home and find him sleeping and I would stare creepily at him until I saw his chest move to make sure he was still breathing. This time, the disease attacked his body far worse than it had before. He lost about 75 pounds, and he was down to skin and bones with a swollen belly. His skin began to turn yellow, and the sides of his sunken face had turned into an ashy gray color. He would periodically just go outside to sit on his Harley, but in a matter of two months, he could no longer hold up his bike. He still would sit outside on occasion and watch the neighbors pass. He started to lose his strength to walk 
and then to Stan. My dad, my daddy was only 49 years old. And he struggled to hold up a glass to sip his water. My mom was given very specific things to look for as signs that he was in danger of organ failure. One of which his, was his ability to tell us what year it was. The day he got lost in our house and couldn't recall our names, we knew we had to take him in. We told him he had a doctor's appointment to trick him into going in. He was adamant that he would be all right. We, ho- we rolled him into the ER at UCLA Medical Center and they asked him if he knew the date. I could see the frustration build as he tried to recall. He wanted to get it right because he knew what getting it wrong meant. When he mumbled some random date in 2005, I stepped out of the curtained room and tried not to cry as I avoided eye contact with all the nurses in the ER. They determined his numbers were off the chart and he was being pushed to the top of the UNOS list. His other organs were barely holding on and my daddy was dying. I came home that night frustrated and terrified. We were waiting for someone else to hopefully die so that my dad could maybe live. It was all so surreal. My mom stayed the night at the hospital the way she always did when he was there. So I walked into a dark and empty house. I remember walking into the living room and falling to my knees. I screamed. I sobbed. I could not handle it anymore. I cried out to God in desperation. God, are you even there? How could you allow this? My daddy is a good person. Hasn't he paid enough for his sins? I know he did drugs, but he turned it around. He has been a good dad for so long now. He has given so much for others, for you. He brought people to know you. I angrily yelled out to God my dad's resume as if he had missed something. I was frustrated. I believed my daddy deserved better. Then, as I cried out in pain, frustration, and despair, I came to the realization that not only could my dad die, but he was seriously more likely to die than to live. My cries began to change into tears of mourning. I saw the face of death. Since my dad was already more than halfway there, and it was familiar, I remained face down in my living room. Tears ran down my face and arms. I could no longer yell or even speak. And I felt this presence just wrap around me. It felt like the Lord was showing me the very likely scenario that my dad could die. It sounds harsh, but it was gentle. He showed me the vast expanse of his vision and his presence. It was overwhelming. And it was like I could see how small my vision was 
and how big his was. He said to me in my spirit, even if he dies, I am still on the throne. I I immediately stopped crying. It was a shift. I couldn't explain it, but comfort covered me. I didn't fully understand what it meant at the time, so it wasn't even the comprehension of the words that comforted me. I didn't quite understand, yet I felt peace. It was a peace I had never felt before. I don't know how, but this peace felt steady, reassured, confident. It was coaxing me into a maturity that I didn't know I could possess. A few days later, my dad was transferred to another room where they pumped him with stabilizing drugs and drained his system to prevent organ failure. We waited and prayed. We got word of a possible match, but the doctors chose otherwise since the person died of brain cancer. Then a match came in, but it could either be for my dad or for a woman and a child. When my dad found out, he begged them to give it to the child. At that moment, I began to understand that there was more at stake in this battle between life and death than I had ever realized before. My dad did not want to die, but he was not afraid of it. There was a love that God had for him that permeated the room. The liver would not fit both the woman and the child. So my dad was next on the list and did not have a choice. This time our pastor came up to the room and while we were waiting, he, my mom, my brother and I sang old school worship songs into the wee hours of the night when they finally rolled my dad into prep for surgery. It was a night whose power still lingers in my worship. To reassure all of you who don't know me, it went well. Now in 2020, 12 years later, my dad is alive and well. He rides his Harley and mows the lawn and can cook up all my favorite Puerto Rican dishes. He takes on projects around the house, lifts weights, and is still my Superman. When he comes into my room and sits at the edge of my bed just to chat about some garage project he's working on, I take it all in. Remembering not only the miraculous healing that God made happen using modern medicine, but also remembering the miraculous healing that God had done in my heart. I will never forget the comfort he gave me that night in my living room. It made no sense. I was crying out for God to save my daddy. I was pleading for reassurance that he would be okay. I was pleading for a miracle, but the Lord stopped me in my tracks that night to show me that I was asking the wrong question. He lovingly showed me that my vision was skewed I was so consumed by how big my situation was that I failed to recognize how big God was. He did not give me the answer I thought I needed in order to feel comfort. He gave me the answer that would sustain me for years to come. In Matthew 19, this rich young ruler was asking God how he could inherit or get eternal life. He wanted to get something from Jesus and be on his merry way. 
He, in his own power, his own influence, his own good deeds, had achieved success in this world. He had made a way for himself, and it was like the one thing he lacked, he wanted to get. The problem was that he was asking the wrong question. His question seemed innocent enough. He seemed like a good person. But the Lord doesn't see things like we do. We often desire the things we believe will bring us the satisfaction, the comfort, the accolades we need. He was asking for a good thing. It is what is promised to us when we give our lives to Jesus, the inheritance of the kingdom of God, eternal life. That's the whole deal of John 3:16, eternal life. However, the Lord wanted to offer him so much more. He wanted to offer him another level of freedom that was not just existing in the heavenlies, not just in the life after death. He was offering him more. He was offering him a promise of life and fullness of life even here on earth. He was offering this young man communion with him. We, like this young man, can fixate ourselves on the things that we feel will complete us. The things we feel would make our lives perfect. These things don't have to be bad things. They can be good things, even godly things. We can say we don't, but we would be lying. More money, a spouse, a career, a home, a ministry, a healing. All these things we cling to and we say, if only we had this or if only we had that. This man had it all. He had checked all the boxes and crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. Still, there was a lack. There was something more that he wanted. He wanted the inheritance, the promise made to the Jews that would come through the Messiah. Like many Jews, he undoubtedly expected the Messiah to bring a more tangible kingdom, a more noticeable inheritance when he would come. He wanted it all, but he had no idea that is exactly what God was offering. He missed it not because he didn't understand what Jesus was asking for, but he missed what Jesus was offering. In this passage, Jesus offers correction twice, attempting to refocus. First, challenging his method for determining goodness, then reframing his question from the focus of inheritance to perfection. The man states that he has kept all the commandments, but Jesus ups the ante by offering perfection. In Matthew, he says, if you want to be perfect, in Mark and Luke, it stayed, stated more like there was one thing he still lacked. I believe the discrepancy of the written accounts were likely due to the fact that Matthew's account of the life of Jesus was intentionally included as a link to Old Testament prophecies, establishing Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew's unique perspective allowed him to capture this callback to Old Testament recollections of the Word of God the Father calling his people to holiness as a means of communion. Be holy as I am holy. It is the Lord drawing us into the perfection he was laying out in the Levitical law, the holiness that allowed communion. 
It created the means for being in the Holy of Holies. A means to connect with the Father. If this young man would have really been paying attention, and if he would have been able to ask the right question, his life would have been changed forever. Jesus was opening up communion with this man, who undoubtedly was familiar with the Levitical law. But much like the priests, the teachers of the law, and the vast majority of the Jewish community of the time, they had strayed from the whole purpose of the law. They had strayed from the heart of it and had become so intently tied to the tradition and the law itself that they forgot the love of their father. Their father's desire to rest with them, to dwell among them, to commune with them. It is not that one must keep the commandments, sell all your possessions, and be perfect according to the law to get to heaven. It is the invitation to commune, to come and follow me, to walk with Jesus, to do life with him, to experience the most exciting, fulfilled, and peaceful life with the creator of the universe holding him by the hand. The perfection from Matthew 19 is the same idea as the perfection mentioned in Matthew 5. The root of this word is teleos, which can be translated as perfect, but means complete or of full age or maturity. The varying forms of the word, including teleo, which is the verb form of the word, is the action of bringing something to perfection or completion. This is used, for example, in James 2 when discussing the idea of perfecting one's faith. The root still goes back to a completeness, lacking nothing. This completeness is repeated again and again throughout New Testament scripture. What I believe God was showing me that dark night on my living room floor was exactly that. It was not that my concern for my dad was not valid, not that my sorrow or my pain was not real, and not even that the healing wouldn't happen, but even if my worst fears came to be, he would be there with me. Had the Lord used any other words, I might have missed it. In my own myopia, I failed to recognize that not only is the Lord King, but that he is steady. He is consistent and he exists beyond the bounds of time and space. He is God. He was inviting me into real relationship, a new level of relationship with him. I had to see God in his sovereignty. I had to let it be settled on who God is and who I am in relation to him. That night, God was not promising me that my dad would be healed, though he was healed. And he was not promising me that my life would be painless. That night, he was promising me that he would always be there for me. Let it be settled in God's love. Let it be settled in his sovereignty.
The passionate heart of our Lord is always about togetherness, community with him, connection with him, life, love, and freedom in him, communion. The problem with the idea of being perfect is that we have been asking the wrong questions. We have been reading wrong. We have been missing the communion. It is not about the guilt and the shame of imperfection. It is about the connection back to him. He is with me. He will never leave me or forsake me. God loves me so overwhelmingly. He will not let me down. He will not fail me or shame me. God wants us to be perfect in how we treat others and act as extensions of our Father by being complete in Him. It is not about your actions of perfection or your image of perfection. It is about a perfected confidence in who God is. God, as I think about my battles in my heart and especially in my mind, It has always found itself in the misunderstanding of who you are and your identity, thus confusing me about my identity in you. I need to know where we stand, because then through hell and high water, I can trust in you and I can trust in us. It's the most powerful love story. It's you. It's always been you. This took me over 12 years to even begin understanding. So before we really start responding, please be gracious with yourself in this process. Recounting these times in my life have triggered many moments of pain and heartache, but it has also brought about a new and profound awareness of God's tremendous love for me. I pray that you are willing to begin the hard part of this journey. As we journey together in upcoming chapters, we will be taking stock of the condition of our hearts, as well as exploring greater understanding of what it means to be perfect and how to walk it out. As we peel back these layers, I pray that miraculous breakthrough happens in your communion with God. This is only a couple of snapshots of the pain, healing, and revelation of this area in my life but it was so hard to pen. As you reflect on your own experiences, is there an area in your life that feels like even thinking about is exhausting? Is it overwhelming? Does it feel impossible that it will ever change? Let's take some time to give it to the Lord. Write a prayer to God, but let's keep it real. When I was sobbing on the floor, I was honest with God. I was laid bare and transparent. I talked to him. Talked to him. Maybe the thought of having to share this is overwhelming. Don't drown yourself in the fear and the expectation. But do not hold back with God. He can follow every twist and turn. Don't try to figure it out. Just make the choice to believe that as you write, as you are writing it out, as you are tearing up, as you uncover things that have been buried for so long, 
that God hears your prayer. Choose to believe that he will reveal to you how he has always been with you. And take a moment to reflect on the times you may have experienced the Lord's comfort or even his peace that wasn't exactly logical. Was God inviting you to commune with him? Well, that is the end of chapter two. And I want to just personally thank you for taking the time to walk this journey with me. It was not easy to put all of these ideas on paper or these experiences that were very personal onto the page. Nevertheless, I believe that I've done that with the expectation that somebody out there needed to hear it. Somebody out there might be encouraged by um, what I went through and being able to know that there is hope on the other side of it. So um, I hope that as we get to know God and we begin to understand this idea of perfection, that we grow in our faith and we grow in our walk with him. And um, I just encourage you to journal write down those prayers have your moment crying out with God and um, if you need more information if you don't have a digital copy please go to our website at untilwearise.org and sign up get the digital copies and join us on this journey and remember until we arise what in your life won't change And with that, I would like to invite you, if you have not already subscribed to this podcast, please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. Also, you can check us out at our website at www.untilwearise.org. And you can also find us on almost every social media platform at Until We Arise. 